17th anniversary. It's a wonderful thing to see so many people here on an occasion which in AA circles is, of course, very important. When Henry uh, mentioned the 17 years, I, I tried to figure where I was 17 years ago. But when it came to subtracting 17 from 1956, I couldn't make it. Uh, I don't know what year that was. Uh, trying to subtract numbers like that makes me think of one time when... This is an AA meeting, all right, I can see that. Before the meeting, somebody said, do you think we ought to turn that fan off over there? And, and uh, Harry said, no, we need it for ventilation. And then the girl got up and turned it off, and he got mad, and I fell at home. I, it's the proper atmosphere. I'm going to take you back uh, to the summer of 1944. I was working in a war plant out in Long Island. The war was on. That was a new experience for me because I had worked in a great many war plants. Uh, after I got out of AA, my wife and I listed them one time, and I had worked in 26 war plants in three years. I, I wasn't exactly a stable person. My wife at that time was uh, working in Grasslands Hospital. We had five children, and uh, somebody had to do something. Stephen. You know, work there brought her in contact with uh, good many undertakers. And she said that by and large, they were pretty heavy drinking life. And one fellow in particular, he used to give in a half pot of it all the time uh, to get that specific to take it. Caught away. She noticed that he came three or four times to uh, solve it well-dressed, and went about his business with his back. The change was so noticeable that uh, she commented on it for him. She said, uh, gee, Mr. Bartell, you said, well, finally say what happened. And he up and told her that he joined out Alex Anonymous. Well, she said, that's very interesting, because I have a drinking problem. He said, you drink? She said, no, I don't drink. My problem is home in bed right now. <laughs> and George was off uh, jumping on the hearse and driving over to see me. And I've often wondered since just what my reaction might have been if I'd pull back the curtain and looked out and seen the, seen the hearse pulling up in front of the house. I feel like something like the guy up at White Plains one night. I was at a meeting and they called on this fellow to talk and he didn't expect that he get up and he said, this. well, gee, I never talked in front of a crowd before. But I can play a harmonica, and he took it out and he played a harmonica. If I had a harmonica, I'd play it now, I get organized. <laughs> so, uh, she said, no, I want you to go over. Uh, he's no frame of mind to talk to anybody about drinking now. He said, well, there's been a new group just out of the New Rochelle, and uh, I'll get a hold of the secretary over there and So the secretary assigned the case to a fellow by the name of Hedberg, who was six weeks old. He'd never been on a self-step case. And he called me on the telephone. He said that, uh, my name is Aaron Hedberg, and he said, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, from a friend of yours and mine, I understand that uh, you have a drinking problem. I'd like to not talk to you about it. I had just told her in the meantime, it was a few days later. I said, now, wait a minute, this. Is this a practical joke? We said, I don't think so. Well, I said, I think it is, but I don't think the guy that told you that is funny. So he said, well, I'm sorry. And he hung up. Now, I didn't know 
that my wife was back of it. This was just a call out of the dock. So uh, he called her the next day and she said, yes, I didn't talk to call her back again. So the next night the guy calls me on the phone again. I don't like that either. I slept him off some way or other. And the next night he called me again. And I said, now wait a minute. But, uh, am I bothering you? He said, no. Well, I said, don't bother me. And I hung up on his ear. Now, uh, did I sound like I wanted to eat? Uh, I know uh, these days uh, it's very likely when a similar set of circumstances that he's a contact with a like that, the, the report would be he's not interested. But this guy was a greenhorn. He didn't know any better. And so, uh, following Friday, I got drunk again. And Sunday night I was sitting out in the back porch shaking it off, trying to get ready to get to work the next day. And the doorbell rang, my wife was sitting out there with me, and she went into the house and came out and said, that man from AA is here again. I said, listen, will you go in and tell him to go away? I don't want to talk to him. Well, she said, I wish you'd talk to him. I don't know. Why don't you talk to him? I don't want to talk to him. That's why. Well, we've been married 25 years at the time. I didn't trust her. (laughs) When she headed into the house, I figured she'd bring him out. I didn't want to see him. It was in August. I had a garden out back. And a lot of the tomato plants had grown up all about that high. So I ran down off the porch and I laid down back to the tomato plants. Well, I was right. She did bring him out. But they couldn't see me. And I heard her say, well, he must have gone over the back fence. And the guy said, I always remember the voice. He said, never mind, we'll get him yet. <laughs> now, I didn't know anything about AA. I didn't know who they were. I knew vaguely there was some organization that dealt with alcoholics. They were crowding in on me, and uh, I didn't know whether they run by the government or what the hell it was, but they were after me, that I know. <laughs> well, that week I stayed sober. Could you help it? And uh, the following Sunday night, I was sitting in the, in the front room, and uh, the guy walked right in. Walked right over and shake hands with me. And, uh, well, I uh, talked to him for a while, and he, he was... But he shrewd he knew my type. I got gone and he let me go. He didn't talk to me to me at all. I didn't give him a chance. So after a while he said, well, that's very interesting. I would try to tell him that, oh yeah, I drank some, but certainly not that I needed him like alcoholics. I don't And he said, well, we're having a meeting tonight. Why don't you come up? We have a group of men up there, a few businessmen that professional men. I think you like it. Well, I said, all right, I'll go. And no sooner had I said that, that my wife was in with a clean shirt. Uh, and before you know it, she and I, and he and his wife, watched the, the meeting. Well, it was at the YMCA. I was a little bit leery. I said, this is some Protestant church out there. I had four priests on my tail as it was, and I didn't want to get that other mob after me. <laughs> but I went in, and uh, that was it. That was it. I haven't had a drink since. But I'll tell you about that part of it later. I think uh, in order to qualify to talk about the program, I ought to tell you a little bit more of the kind of drunk that I was. I've often heard it said they that we're all alike, but that hasn't been my observation. Thank the Lord. Uh, we all have a common problem, but we're all kinds of personalities. And uh, I'm a common, ordinary, garden variety of drunk. Uh, 
the likelihood that she met many. I, uh, I read a great deal in uh, the literature that we alcoholics uh, become alcoholics because we try to escape from something. Well, I don't know in the beginning when I was trying to escape from anything. Uh, I didn't start to drink until I was 30. Oh, I won't say I never took a drink. I did on occasion before that. But it was very seldom. If I went to a football game and they were passing the bottle around, I got in on the deal. If I went to a wedding and things of that kind, uh, I became an evidence by getting drunk. Uh, but that wasn't very often. At the time I was 30, I did start drinking. And uh, I've often thought back about it. Uh, and I can't recall that I drank because I wanted to escape from anything. I had a good job. I had a nice wife. I had five children. I owned my own home. I had good prospects at the companies I was with. I wasn't sick. I always felt good. I was confident of my future. I wasn't worried about anything. And I said he didn't start drinking because I was trying to escape from anything. Oh, later on in my drinking, when I got really bad, I did a lot of escape drinks. I couldn't say things that I could walk and get drunk. But certainly that wasn't so at the beginning. Uh, I drank. Uh, I walked try to analyze myself to see if I could find out why I drank. But uh, I, the only answer that I came up with was that I used to like to get drunk. I used to love to get drunk. Put me up in front of a bar on a Saturday afternoon with a pocket full of money, and I took off and had a hell of a good time. <laughs> the only trouble was they kept doing it too long. And I got in a lot of trouble. I, uh, I was the kind of fellow that, uh, I remember, uh, I was always in brawls and bars before I wore glasses. When I put the glasses on, I, I put them on because I needed them to see what's right. But they turned out to have an unexpected value because nobody ever put me after I put the glasses on. Before that, I was stopping all the time. I remember when there was a bar in that bar from where I lived. It. I went off one Saturday. I remember throwing a $10 bill in the bar. And they gave me a double-headed joint. And he said, uh, wait a minute. He, he picked up the bill and he passed it back to me. He said, Mars, this is Saturday afternoon. This is my busiest afternoon. I do more business here on Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening. I do all the rest of the week. Now, he said, listen, you cause more trouble in a bar room than any man I ever said. Will you take your money and go away? I can put out a bar before you can start a drink. <laughs> can you imagine what happened after I did start a drink? I was always in trouble in that way. I, uh, I was always in trouble with cops. Uh, you walk up to a cop and, uh, who isn't bothering you and start talking to him and get him telling before you get through, you know you're going to get in trouble. Uh, I got in plenty of trouble that way. I, uh, I, I never should have drunk at all. I was not a successful drinker. I, uh, I remember one time, uh, uh, the company I was with at that time, uh, uh, a young man had been made vice president. He was probably 38 or 40 at the time, and he and I had been somewhat friendly. And I had just bought a new home, and I thought it might be a good idea if I invited him. And I remember, uh, he came. His wife couldn't come for some reason or other, but he drove up to the house, and I, well, I had everything all ready for him. I knew he took a drink. At this time, I hadn't got too far down the scale. And I remember that I made up uh, three nice, I think it was mint jewels, something classic. And I had these tall glasses, and I put them in the refrigerator with mint coming out of them. Making a pressure. So I, I spiked him pretty well, I remember that. And when he came in, I brought him in the tray and gave him one, and gave my wife one, and I sat down, and we kept sipping the thing. Well, he, was a, he wasn't an alcoholic, and he took his time drinking, and it took him a long while to get rid of that one. And uh, when he finally did get rid of it, I went out, and I had another one all frosted, pretty. And he brought it in, and we drank that. Well, by the time I got through with that, of course, I could two double-headers at me, and I took a shot when I was out in the kitchen. So by the time he gets through with that, by now I come in and I say, hey, Bill, I bring a quart right in. Hey, Bill, have a drink. <laughs> Making an impression on the vice president. Before we get through, we got the fight. 
Back in my house. My wife says, I come downstairs, you're rolling around the floor, you're punching him, he's punching you. <laughs> After that, he never called me Mark. He always called me Mr. Grady. <laughs> that was a friendship he never developed. I, uh, uh, I kept breaking his wood and got on the way. Grady was trouble. I, uh, I not only had trouble outside, I had trouble at home. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say in AA that they're, well, as bad as they got, they never took a fault with their wife. Well, I got that bad, I didn't take a fault with my wife. And it didn't usually turn out very well. I had three daughters, uh, the time I'm talking about her in high school, and I had a boy who was on the, on the football team, so it was three to four, and they could handle me all right. And every time I start throwing my weight around the house, I usually get licked. I come off the truck and I'd be all black and blue. It wasn't until I got I used to think I picked it up in barrooms, and it wasn't until I got in the way I discovered a good problem, I got right in my own house. <laughs> I remember one night uh, coming home, I'd been drinking wine, and uh, the wine made me very ugly. Uh, I got through the whiskey stage, I drank whiskey for quite a long while, and then when I ran out of money, I started drinking wine because you got a lot of mileage out of wine, and, uh, but it made me ugly. And I, uh, this happened, I, I told this one time they put it in the grapevine, I didn't read it out of the grapevine. Uh, I was coming up the walk and then, feeling nasty, as I say, and then, I remember saying to myself, uh, well, if she has to get dinner ready, I'll raise hell. And if she has to get it ready, I won't eat it. <laughs> so when I get into the kitchen, she had the crepe codfish and baked potatoes. That's a good dish around New England where I come from. Skins and all, you know. Yeah. Uh, looks kind of messy, but it tastes good. And when I get in, she had that ready for me, and I said, uh, the hell you got there? She says, you know what I got there. I said, what do you think I am, a pig? And she says, yes, you look just like one. <laughs> Get up and I chased her out and I grabbed her that place and I chased her off and she sat up the stairs and I found the catfish up the stairs after her and about that time the family swung into action and uh, they got me down on the dining room floor and uh, the sun tackled me and the daughters got on and they were pounding the hell out of me and I remember she's up on the stairs and she says take his glasses off <laughs> Get him up. 
Well, they get up, you know, and they're all downstairs, and nobody's listening to music. We've got all about that by now, and we're in an argument. And I took a poke at it, and one of my daughters hit me right in the head with a bottle. Soda bottle. I got a scar here yet to prove it. So then I had to poke it down, fading it down, see? I have it here to remind me of it. Every once in a while, when, I, uh, when I'm down about A, I just feel this little scar up here. That's where I'd be if I, if I, if I started back and stuff again. Well, I, uh, after I get out of the way, of course, as I look back at, the, at my experiences, I recall many other things that show uh, how far down I was going. Uh, in the beginning, uh, I handled my drink all right, although I didn't have a long, successful drinking career. I, uh, I degenerated into being a first-class liar. I used to lie so often. I, I developed such a false world to live in that I can't remember the day when the certain things that are in my memory, whether they actually happened, or whether they were these things were these things I used to talk about. I got fired from a job one time. It was a very good job. And I developed a very complicated story explaining how I got fired. Or how I didn't get fired, but explaining how I left. And I told that story so often that I, you know, finally got to believe it myself. And it wasn't too long after I was in AA that I finally get up one night and I said, hell, I didn't get... I used to tell the story about uh, coming to a disagreement with the new management and how I went out. Uh, everybody in the audience has probably been quiet. That's one good thing about AA, you know, when you tell about this stuff like the lights getting turned off or anything, nobody cares, they all have turned off, too. With the same way with getting quiet, but I remember... Uh, this sort of thing happened. Uh, one time, I uh, was on my vacation up in Boston, and uh, when the three weeks were up, I was too drunk to the end of it to know that I knew that I couldn't get back to work on Monday. So I sent a wire ahead to, we'll be detained until Wednesday, we'll explain. Uh, I got in Wednesday morning, and this was the story I told. Now, it didn't happen at all, but I, I remember reading Hitler's book, and then he said, if you tell a lie, tell a big one. Tell a great, great big one, because they'll believe a great big one, or they won't believe a little one. So that sounded all right to me in my frame of mind. So I made up this story. Uh, my brother-in-law and I had gone out to see the Red Sox play, and on the way back, driving across the city, we went across on Massachusetts Avenue, went into a lunchroom, and when he came out, John got into the car, John had had a couple of beers. And a fellow stepped out in front of him just inside of the car, and he knocked him down. And we picked him up, and we drove him diagonally down to the Boston City Hospital. and brought him in, and they found out that the fellow's skull was cracked, so they held John because they smelled the beer on him. And John was in the police station, and they counted the fact the fellow was in serious shape. It was $5,000 bail, and I had to wait around the next day to raise the money to get him out. Now, that was the story I told. And that's a good story, and they believed it. But the aftermath was about three or four years later. I was up in Boston one time, and John and I went out, and we tied him on. And when he was standing in the bar, I said, Hey, John, whatever happened to that guy you hit down on Massachusetts? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had, uh, I had visualized that. I'm a lawyer, and I know that the only chance you get to get a lie like that is to believe it, you know, and really recreate the conditions, and that's what I had done. In my memory today, there are many other things like that, and I can't tell you whether they ever actually happened or not. I remember going from the Tarrytown station to my house, which was about a mile and a half. There was a shortcut where I could go up the railroad track about a half a mile and uh, cut through the lattice and made it shorter. Now, I have very vividly uh, in my memory, lying on the track, there was a, the track was on one level and the path beside the track was down a lower level, and the bank was down like that, and there were clinkers there. And I can remember lying on that bank. And every once in a while, a train going by me three or four feet up above my head. I can very vividly remember. Now, whether that actually happened, or whether it was in the DTs, or hallucinations or not, I couldn't tell you. I had the DTs. I had them more than once. I had hallucinations. I had all that sort of thing. Uh, and it was a frightening experience. I, uh, since I've been on the way in, I look back at some of these things that uh, right. 
until I was 30, they said I was a normal fellow. And I've been an AA a dozen years now, and I've been normal since I've been in. I can go out and, and make a good living today. It's some competition. I'm a normal man. And in my youth, I was. But there was a period in there of about 15 years, I can't understand it. It seems like a, a, a dream, a nightmare. I know what that second step means. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And sanity is as used in that step, at least the way I interpret it. doesn't mean the crazy nonsensical things that I did when I was thinking, such as I bought mine. That's all right. But you put a quarter whiskey and eyes an hour, and he'll act like a jackass, too. <laughs> I don't mean that. I mean in my sober intervals. I wasn't drunk all the time. Nobody's ever drunk all the time. In the, in the year before I came into AA, I had three months of, uh, three different three-month periods of sobriety. Three months is all while to be sober for an alcoholic. And in those, but at, in those times, I wasn't normal. My attitude on life was, uh, uh, was awful. I had got to the point I was antisocial. I didn't like people. Now, that's not by nature. I do like people. But in, those, in that period, I didn't. I had to be, I isolated myself from the rest of mankind. I developed a frightful uh, uh, antagonism to the rest of the race. Now, it all came from my drinking. I have a... My analysis of uh, the problem of the alcoholic... Uh, now, this is my own. Probably many others have the same view of it. However, it's not orthodox. Does anybody know here tonight? Uh, there isn't any such thing in AA really as any orthodoxy. There's nobody in AA that's going to tell you what's what. They can give you their version of what they think is what, what. And uh, it may be right or it may be wrong. I know things that I thought were so five years ago, I don't, I don't think it's so today. Uh, we can change our mind in AA, nobody cares. It's, it's frequently done. But what I, the way I figured it out uh, is this. And I repeat, this is strictly my own view. I think the basic component in the alcoholic is physical. It's not the only component. But I think it's basically that. There's something in my system that when I put alcohol into it, something happens to me that doesn't happen to my brother. I have a brother two years younger than I. We have the same mother and father. We were brought up in the same general background. We had the same sort of education that we started off uh, life uh, more or less together. And we both started to drink about the same time. He still drinks. He's got a big job at the big company at a very high salary and he's a successful man and very normal. He drink once in a while and he'd get tight once in a while. Not often. But in the early days when he and I were drinking the same amount, things were happening to me physically that, that weren't happening to him. Now we don't know what it is. There are various theories you'll hear in AA about as far as they'll go as to say that we're allergic to alcohol. And even that's an issue of the word allergy, I think. But we know from our own experience that when we take alcohol in our system, something different happens. Whether it's metabolism or whatever, it doesn't make any difference. All we know is that it's there. So I always say there's something wrong with that gizzard. And let it go with that. Now, with that to start with, as I went along with my drinking, in no time at all I was getting physically very sick as a result of things. I remember one time this same brother came to visit me. This was when I was, oh, in the very early stages of my drinking. He lived in Canada and I lived in New York. And uh, when he came down, he brought a a quart of whiskey with him. And we had a few drinks sitting in my kitchen, like three apiece maybe. And I took the bottle and I said, do you have another one? And he said, no, I don't care for any. I've had enough. I said, you don't mind my take one? He said, no. And I drank it. I poured out a drink and I drank it. Well, then the problem came up. He didn't show any signs to get to bed. And I didn't want to drink another one in front of him, but I wanted one. 
I did maneuver it eventually, so that he went along to bed, and I pretended to go to bed. I went up to my own bedroom, and I waited for a while, and I thought he was asleep. And then I went downstairs, and I finished the court. In fact, I even went out, had a few more. I was trying to buy. So the next morning, when uh, he got up, he came into my bedroom, said, you going to the city? Well, I said, no, I think I'll wait. I said, I think I'll wait for a later train. And he sat on the edge of the bed, and he says, get up. What do you mean, sit up, I want to talk to you. So I sat up. He said, what's the matter with you? I said, what do you mean? He said, you're still drunk. Well, I said, I had a little extra. He said, I know what you did. I know what you did. I heard you go out. Now, that was years ago. Now, there were circumstances which were very embarrassing to me, and I remember thinking it over afterwards. I said to myself, there's something different between him and me. This wasn't any occasion for getting drunk. This wasn't a football game. This wasn't hanging around a bar. This was a case of a brother myself that I hadn't seen for a couple of years. And I knew when I took that last, that extra drink that I shouldn't do it. I remember crystallizing my think at that time. There is something wrong with me. Now, that was years before I got into any serious trouble with my drinking. I, I mentioned it only as an illustration that I think the physical component of this thing is very important, certainly in the beginning. Now, as I went along with my drinking, uh, and I began getting sick, up until the time that I began getting sick in the morning, really sick in the morning, it didn't make any difference. <clears throat> I had a job in the city. I lived out, in, uh, out of Westchester County, and if I drank at night, it didn't seem to make much difference as long as I got on the job and did my work. But as time went on, I was too sick in the morning to get into work. And then I had to start drinking uh, during the day. I had to get something to stop me off in the morning. And it was awful trying to hold down a job and drink. Uh, so, of course, the, then the, the nervousness set in. The lying set in. The guilt complex set in. When I first began to drink, uh, I would come into the office and say, Oh, did I get drunk Saturday? Did I do this? You know, like it was funny. Like, like high school kids do. Well, I was in my 30s then, and uh, it didn't uh, cause any ripple of amusement that I could see. And after a while, as I began getting, getting sick and taking time off of work, I, then I caused the, uh, I changed. I didn't tell anybody I was drinking around the office. I covered it up. Uh, and then things really began to get bad. And eventually, uh, after many warnings, I got fired. Now, I had a wife and five children at that time. And it was a good job for a young fellow, a very good job. Well, of course, then I began to get panicky. I don't know what to do. I didn't know where to go for a job because I figured that no matter where I went, uh, they'd check back, uh, why did he leave? So I didn't know what to do. There was a period, I had enough money then so that I was able to work. All go along a good part of the year without working. And I drank most all that time. And that's the sort of thing that uh, non-alcoholics can't understand. Why should a man under those circumstances with a wife and five children with a good job with all this gone, obviously caused by the drink, and why should he continue to drink? I mean, that's what a normal person would say, well, you know why I That was escape drinking by that time. And it was a frightful experience. I didn't drink for fun then. It's all right to uh, uh, relate amusing things that happened when I was drinking. It's a good thing to do that, I think. I mean, it, uh, the philosophy of it is good. But it was a horrible experience for me. I did get a job... Uh, after that year, worked for the government. And it was a good job. But I didn't think it was a good job because it only paid me about a third or a quarter of what I'd been making. And I thought I was doing the government a favor to work for. I had a three-month appointment. I got drunk a couple of times in that three-month appointment with when I was supposed to be at a certain place to do certain things. And of course, when the three months ran out, they didn't renew it for me. Then a, a frantic period set in. And then the war came along, and then I got out of the uh, war plant uh, type of work that I told you about. But after I got into AA, I didn't know what to expect in AA. I had never read anything about it. I'd never read any of the literature. But there was one very good thing for me. Uh, I knew that I was an alcoholic. I didn't have the faith to admit it. I was glad to know it. I was glad to know that I was an alcoholic because I could see that the program had a solution for the problem if I was interested. I, I learned that much the first night. 
I remember in the first part of the talk, uh, I gave a story which was remarkably close to my own. He was my age. He had five children. He was Irish. There were many things in common. And as he told the story, I was, I was uh, uh, entranced. And after the meeting, I, I talked to him, and I told him that how I had tried to stop drinking. So I drank whiskey for years and then stopped that, and then I drank wine, and then I got off the wine, and all I had had to drink before I committed away for a period of about three years was beer and ale, which was true. I said I was trying to stop drinking. And John said to me, uh, no, you weren't trying to stop drinking. You were trying to stop getting drunk, which is a different thing. And it was a different thing. He was the first one that ever pointed it out to me, that I wanted to drink, although I didn't want to keep getting drunk and getting into all that trouble. And he said to me, if you're an alcoholic, and he said, we're going to leave that entirely for you to decide. If you're an alcoholic, you're going to find out that you can't take one drink, no matter what it is. He said, there's something different about you physically that you can't take it into your system, because if you do, all these other things are going to happen. I just... I want to bring up one point again in connection with my thinking that the that the uh, physical component is probably the most important part, or at least an important part, of our overall problem. That is imposed upon uh, many types of people. We're not all the same. Some people in AA are, are uh, much more emotional than others. We're all emotional. We're a pretty emotional lot. But some are much more so than others. And if you if they happen to have the combination. Then you got something. I, I, I mention that because I've seen many people who've come into AA and after a short time seem to be able to level off and resume a, a normal uh, place in society and do a good job of it. Now the chances are they were that way before they started to drink. And after they started to drink, the, the type of experience developed that I've already outlined here in my case, but when they stopped drinking and started back to work, Realizing what my problem was, it didn't take me long to level off again. Now, there are a great many people that aren't that fortunate. I'm not criticizing. That just happens to be their makeup. They were probably very unstable people in the beginning. That goes back, probably the psychiatrist would say, it goes back way back to their childhood. Now, if you take a very unstable emotional person and with this physical component and let him do the drinking, he really gets hurt very badly even probably more than I. And it takes him longer to get straightened out again. He can get straightened out all right. I've seen many, many cases of it in AA. It took a long while, but by degrees. If they continue in the therapy and continue in their association with members of Alcoholics Anonymous, they will gradually level off and be all right. They will be more stable than they were before they ever started to drink. But that emotional factor something on which there could be a great deal of disagreement because of the, the various types of people involved. I, uh, I, it wasn't until after I got on the way that I realized how unstable that I was. I would have resented it very much if anybody had told me that uh, 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 I would have resented it very much if anybody had told me then that I was unstable. But one evidence of instability uh, uh, or let's say emotional immaturity uh, that I've become cognizant of since I get out of AA is our sensitivity to criticism. I was always sensitive to anybody pointing out anything wrong with me. My wife, we've discussed this many times since I've been there, and she said, Mars, I, there were so many times there were things that were that you weren't doing right, not in connection with my drinking. And I, I would want to mention it to you, but you'd always blow up. You wouldn't take any criticism. Now, of course, that's a sign of, uh, of emotional immaturity, and I think, probably, basically, it goes back to your childhood when you were afraid of getting a slap if you admitted that something. If somebody said, did you do that? I know uh, my father was uh, the old school, and uh, if I did something, if he said, did you do that? And I'd say, yes, I get a slap in the push. So the next time he asked me, I said, no, I didn't do it. You know, you kids win. So I think basically it was probably, uh, well, you'd have to stay after school if you get caught. You always know, punish the things that you did to your kids, and the result is you're likely to develop a, a, a defense against them. Now, that's my own clumsy analysis of it. I don't know whether that's said or not, but at least that makes sense to me. 
So I know I was very, very sensitive to criticism. And I can't have I get in the way A, and that same thing happened. The A fellows helped me. I mean, they, they, they're not very delicate around AA. They'll say, what the hell is the matter with you? Do you think you know all the answers? Well, I mean, that's the way they're likely to put it, and uh, uh, I remember one time thinking about how delicate they are. I, I, was, I was at a meeting one time, and a fellow said to me, uh, I get pretty well acquainted. We come along, the guy says, uh, my teeth needed to be fixed. He said, why don't you get your teeth fixed? You know, where the hell can you go to have people come up and say, why don't you get your teeth fixed? Oh, I needed them fixed. So I went and got them out. Otherwise, I, if I hadn't got them, I'd probably still have them, and I'd have been a lovely specimen. I mean, they, and they, they, they tell you those things. This same fellow, incidentally, you. First meeting I went to, uh, I didn't have a very good suit of clothes. Uh, in fact, I didn't have a, well, it was a terrible suit of clothes. And uh, a couple of weeks later, this fellow was shorter than I was, but otherwise he was about the same build. He said to me, uh, I hope you won't get hurt, but uh, I've got a suit of clothes that I think would fit you. Would you like to have it? And I said, yeah. <laughs> so I said, uh, I looked at him. His legs are shorter than mine. And uh, he said, you put some French cuffs on it. So I take it off. My wife put some French cuffs on it. And I went around uh, wearing this suit to my early AA meetings. It was a little bit embarrassing, though, because it was the summertime. And inside the back of the coat, it was it, it was stamped in indelible ink, E.J. Wall. And I didn't want to take the coat off because I was afraid somebody would see it. And I used to wear this hot coat at all the summer meetings. And the funny part was they all knew I had a suit on. I didn't, you know, he passed the word and they said it was good on him. And they, but I didn't know it. I was sitting there afraid they might find it out. And afterwards, it was, it was funny. Uh... I, I mentioned this to his wife one time a couple of years later. She said, do you know where the, the E.J. Wall came from? I said, no. She said, if they put it on him when he's up in a booby hatch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I moved up to Schenectady, and I, I still had the suit. And one time there was a boy coming through town. Got the, uh, he was hanging around the clubhouse, and he looked like he could wear it. So I said, uh, get a suit for you. like to wear a suit. And he said, yeah. So I gave him the suit. And you know what happened? He gets pencil the shop left him, and he gave his name as E.J. Wall. <laughs> because he got to have my name on. <laughs> I, I cut the piece out of the paper and said, E.J. Wall, so what? And I mailed it down to Wall, and I said, it's damn good enough for you being such a Christian. <laughs> I, uh... Him to give you an audio about something I... I had told him about my time on my work at any rate, about the type of thing I used to do. I, when I was living out in Tarrytown, and I used to commute. And in those days, we just had to have a ticket which you, you show to the, uh, just show the conductor like that. You know, in New York, just open. He didn't have to flip anything off. Well, I'm coming up this train this night drunk, uh, and it was the later train that I usually came on, and the conductor came through, and I didn't like his look. Some reason, really. And he said, hey, ticket. I want to show him a ticket. So he says, have you got a ticket? And I said, yeah. Well, he said, show it up. I said, no. <laughs> One of those ugly drunks. So at Yonkers, uh, the train stopped a little bit extra, a little longer than usual. And the next step, stop was a couple of stops was hazy. And the conductor came on. He's got two cops with them. So he walked up very triumphantly. He said, the cop, there he is. And the cop says, have you got a ticket? I says, yeah. He went to show the conductor. I went to show him. So they throw me in the can. Well, I knew the chief of police down there, and I worked that one out. I don't know, six or seven weeks later, I'm coming up on the same train. And the same conductor came through, and he wanted to see my ticket. I'm showing the ticket. At Yonkers, he stopped at Hastings. The two same cops come on. Want to show the ticket? No. And I land in the can, I'm sitting there and say, well, I guess I showed that guy. <laughs> that stuff really straightens out to thinking, doesn't it? Well, that, that, was, that was the kind of, uh, the kind of thing that, that uh, I was doing anyway. Well, I wanted to say one or two more things about uh, how the program uh, 
I know in one of my early meetings, I had a fellow from the Bronx uh, talk who had been a policeman in the New York City police force and who lost his job for breaking. And he said that in the first year he was an AA, he paid off something like $3,000 bills. Now, that impressed me. That was the kind of thing I like to hear, because that was about what I owed. I think I owe a little more than that, but the, the fact that he was sober and had paid off some bills, that impressed me. The spiritual part of the program, that didn't create any impression on me at all. But if I could pay off my bills, uh, then I figured things would be all right. But as I went along, uh, these uh, uh, sayings in AA, uh, teachings of AA, the steps of AA, by the constant repetition, it began to sink into me. I thought at the beginning that 12-step work was quite dramatic. I read the papers about how the AAs would get up at any time of the day and night and go out to help somebody. That's all right. Of course, uh, it doesn't turn out that way after I get into AA. Uh, get, you get them out uh, late at night, uh, they'll see you in the morning. Uh, at least that's the way it is around Schenectady. Uh We'll work on it, sure, but as regards this galloping out on a, on a white horse as a hero, it didn't turn out that way with me. I thought it was that way in the beginning, but I found out as I went along uh, that there was much more to it than that. And, uh, in that connection, I think of an experience I had not too long ago. <laughs> we have a fellow in Schenectady that's been around AA for about 10 years. He very rarely comes to a meeting, uh, and I think then it only comes because the well, he just doesn't have anything else to do that night. That might be uncharitable, but I think that's what it probably is. And for some reason or other, he's taken a shine to me. I took him to a lot of meetings, and uh, I've given up on him for the time being. At least I don't think that I can do anything for him. But he has the uh, unhappy habit of calling me up about half past four or five o'clock in the morning. And say, hi, man. This is Benny. Well, not too long ago, he called me up and uh, I said, uh, Do you know what time it is, Bernie? He said, Down, what time it is? I said, It's 4.30 in the morning. And I hung up. Well, the next day, not that morning, but the following morning, just before I'm going out to work around 8 o'clock, the telephone bell rings, and I picked it up and I said, Hello? He says, Oh, Mars, yeah, this is Bernie. Oh, I said, Hello, Bernie, I'm glad to hear from you. You seem to be all right today. I won't hang up anymore. He says, no, you're goddamn right, I'm hanging up on you. (laughs) (coughs) They'll teach you tolerance. But I found out, and this is one of the very uh, difficult parts of the program for me, but one of the most beneficial, and that is that in working with alcoholics, we, if we do it honestly, sincerely, that we're giving of ourselves in a charitable way to help somebody that needs it. It happens to be that that somebody isn't always a nice guy. Well, we weren't nice guys either, and somebody had to help us. My wife taught me a good lesson on that some years ago, when there was a fellow that I had known in my drinking days who came around the way, and it was quite a problem. Uh, he'd be sober for a while, and uh, then he'd get drunk. And on one occasion, uh, I had spent some time one evening with him, and I came home, and I was all worn out because he was a very irritating, exasperating drunk. And I said to my wife, that's the last time I'm ever going to go out to have anything to do with him. And she said, wait a minute, Morris. Do you think he's exasperating? I said, yes. She says he never was half as bad as you. You don't have to sleep with them. <laughs> she said, you ought to be lying in bed at 2 o'clock in the morning with a hard day's work to do a and have a husband come home like you to do a raise in hell and climbing into bed and talking and ugly and so forth. And she said, you did it to me for years. She said, now don't, don't you go around and tell me that you're not going to go work in this guy because he exasperates you. She reminded me when I come home, I, we were living in a house... In Arsenic, great big house, so big that nobody else would live in it. I mean, nobody would be. And we lived in the kitchen that winter. We had a cold stove there, and I could keep that going. I wouldn't try to heat the rest of the house. It was impossible. And it was cold up there in that bedroom. Then I come home one night drunk. Uh, it was so cold that I just walked right upstairs, get out of the bed with my overcoat and hat and everything else. 
And she says, what's the matter with you? You might at least take your hat off. <laughs> so these exasperating drunks is part of the problem. What are we going to do? Just work with the nice drunks? The ones that don't know you're good are the exasperating ones. If you take an easy 12-step call, and as you will on occasion, and the fellow walks right on the way and he stops thinking, that's going to make you feel good, sure. But that isn't the one that does you really good. That just kind of satisfies the ego. I met a fellow here tonight, uh, an old friend of mine from, from New York, uh, who came into AA, and uh, he had a little trouble after he was into the mouth or anything. But he was a relatively easy case. Sure. But what about these tough ones? They're sick. They're sick people. And they may have wives. And they may have families. They may not be here. They may be someplace else. But the fact that they have these exasperating qualities is no reason why you can't be patient with them. I can get smug every once in a while in AA as everybody else can. But it's a bad sign. It's, it's, when it's inconvenient for me to work on an exasperating drunk, then I say to myself, Brady, why not to be honest with yourself? You're still falling inside. It's very important, I think, that we get acquainted with ourselves. And I'm not talking about the social aspects of our living. I've often thought that I was at my worst point in my drinking long before I got down socially. I was at my worst point when I still had a good job, when I had all the money I needed, and when I could do any damn thing I wanted. I was much worse then than I was later when everybody called me a bum. Because I was selfish, I was self-centered, and I did what I wanted. And there wasn't any Christianity in me at all. But after I got down there and I began to do a little bit of suffering, I began to learn. And there's always this silver cloud on the lining, I think, that the alcoholic had just written up, that in all those years of drinking, it wasn't all waste. The suffering you did, did you good. At least it did me good. And I've had my own children tell me that it did them good, too. One of my daughters told me, Daddy, she said, I'm glad that it happened. Because she said, before you began to drink, she said, I was old enough that I was a little starved. You lived, we lived in a very nice home, and we had a maid, and we had a big car, and I thought I was better than the other girls that went to school. And she said, it's a good thing for my soul that you dragged us down the way you did. Now, that came from one of my own daughters, and she's got seven children today. In that connection, I might say, I got a little picture here I had her taken. There they are. There's Mama and myself and the five kids and four in-laws and had 12 grandchildren. See, that's what will happen to you if you're an A. They're all together. <laughs> I'll just tell you uh, one or two more things about my family, and I'll call it a night. Sir. I was a very bothersome, troublesome drunk, and the, in, the effect of it on my family uh, was something that, of course, that always concerned me. But my wife is a religious woman. Really religious. Not pious, I don't mean that. But she said to me, Morris, if it wasn't for the church, you would have driven me crazy. It pulled me through. And it pulled the girls through. The boy, who was after the three girls, was the one that seemed to take the front of it. Every boy wants to be proud of his father. I think more so than the girls. He wanted to have a father to look up to. And here I was, uh, an unknown quantity to my boy. When I was right, he loved me. And when I wasn't right, he hated me. And it was, he was this poor lad, he didn't know what to do. He was in high school, I'm talking back now about a year before I came away, a year and a half. He was skipping classes. He wasn't getting good marks. Now he was a, he was a bright boy and he had done well in school. So my wife was very much concerned, and she took him to a psychiatrist at Grassland Hospital. And the psychiatrist interviewed the boy, oh, six or eight times. And he said to him, Mrs. Brady, there's nothing wrong with that boy except his father's drinking. Well, 
it wasn't, uh, say, a year after that that I joined AA. And then he went into the service. And he was away for a couple of years. And all the time he was away, of course, when he would write home, he would put a separate little slip of paper in his pocket still all right. And, of course, he'd write back and say, yes, he was all right. Well, of course, that helped him. Now, he was only a kid. He was 17 years old when he went in. But he saved enough money when he was there to buy me the watch. And I wouldn't sell it for a million dollars. That's the boy. Now, when he get back from the service, he went back and finished high school. He went to college to a tough technical school. And he graduated. And he's a successful engineer today. He's married. And he has two nice children. Now, that boy is a normal boy today. But what would he be if I kept drinking? Or what would the baby, the young fellow who's 25 today, who thinks his old man's a good guy, what would he be? We don't like to think about those things. But if you're drinking alcoholic and you got a family, you'll raise hell with them and you leave your mark for you to think about it. And you can't get away from it. It isn't nice to remind you of those things, but if you happen to be here tonight and you're still drinking, you got a family, you better think of it because you're going to leave your mark on them. And you'll accomplish someday, too, if you believe in those things. So he straightened me out. I'm adjusted with my family and with the rest of the world. I got myself back into the church where I belong. I was out of that quite a little while because I was too smart or too cowardly to go. But I'm straightened out in that respect. Uh, I'm a normal person. And I can thank A.A. for it. And a good job. Of his business, if he was operating, and yet there is no business that is anyways near as valuable or as important as the business of running our own lives successfully for 24 hours. And to take a few minutes out of the day to try to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, praying only for a knowledge of his will and the strength to carry it out, and then the gift that is bestowed upon all alcoholics who want it and who will use it, the privilege of carrying this message to other sick, alcohol- sick alcoholics who are looking for it and want it, and to practice these principles in all our daily affairs. I was full of gratitude. I am a grateful individual. I love AA. I love the way I've been living. I've never had so much for so little. And I sound like the nth degree of gratitude which I mean to express from the very bottom of my eyes. Yet I stand to tell you tonight, as much as I dislike to, and yet it is an honest program, and I want this program, and there's only one way anybody can have it, and that is by being honest. After eight years and ten and a half months of sobriety, through an unwillingness to face a problem that was before me, and a very little one, and significant one, one that caused, would cause a little hurt, but the right kind of hurt that would heal and heal justly and correctly. And I was unwilling to do it in all my training. I was to forsake, even though the dictates of my conscience directed me through God's will what to do. And I started backing away. And the results, the same as missing meetings, the same as the unwillingness to apply this program, the same complacency and selfishness that comes over so many of us, from time to time where we no longer need to do the things we did when we first come in. And it's do as I say, not as I do. And we take things for granted. And we look for the things we don't have and give no thought to the things we do have that we should be grateful for and use in an appreciative manner this very moment. And what is more precious than anything you've got tonight than this moment? Because it is always with you, this moment, and only that moment. Two years ago, this coming Christmas, I had to get drunk to relieve the tension because I had become dishonest in my unwillingness 
to face a problem, to do what was right. No, I'm not happy to tell you that. But I am proud to be a part of a fellowship that demands it. Because I only have one chance to live, and that is to live honestly, and live by this program, and to return to this program as I know it, and as I know what it will do for me. And you know, I was only drinking for a matter of a couple of hours, but it robbed me of all eight, ten and a half months, eight years and ten and a half months of sobriety. It made me a beginner again in AA. I'm not one that holds with this that I just lost a day and I could go on saying I'm sober nine years with the exception of a day or ten years with the exception of a day. But I refuse to be my own whipping boy because I want to live and I want to live as I once lived under this fellowship. And I had to get down and dig down deep and I had to come back to the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous as it was taught that the only way I can keep what I've got is to try to give it away to share to work with it for it and buy it and shoulder to shoulder that I can say God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference